0: Hello, and welcome to Genetics Unzipped, the Genetics Society podcast with me, Dr Katani. In this episode, we're taking a look at the history of gene editing, from the early days of restriction enzymes in the 1960s through to the CRISPR revolution and the very latest base editing techniques. But while these tools are undeniably powerful and hold great promise for treating disease, with great power comes great responsibility. What are the acceptable limits of genome engineering in humans? And will we see more CRISPR babies in the future? Before we start, a reminder to check out the new science podcast from First Create the Media and the MRC London Institute of Medical Sciences. Suffrage Science – How Women Are Changing Science looks at the journeys of women in science and the challenges we still face through conversations with inspirational women scientific leaders. In one recent episode, I sat down for a chat with climate scientist Tamsin Edwards to talk about how best to communicate the uncertainties of science in a changing world, from climate to COVID to cancer. There were all those predictions right at the beginning, particularly in the UK, of how many deaths there would be if there was no action. Then kind of later on, people say, oh, well, look, you know, the scientists predicted this, but it didn't happen, And obviously sort of failing to say, because we didn't do nothing, because we had things like lockdowns and social distancing and all of that stuff. And that stuff can be either lost by accident or on purpose, that kind of information. So the same might happen with climate change, right? I mean, we might, you know, reduce our emissions so much that we more or less meet the Paris Agreement. I think it's hard to completely hit the Paris Agreement, but we might get sort of fairly close. And so there will be more climate change, but it won't be that, like, worst case end of things that we've obviously been making predictions for as well and so people might well look back and go ah it was all for nothing oh the climate scientists were over predicting but the whole point was we took action (laughs) and so it wasn't that worst case scenario over the series, we're hearing from computing legend Wendy Hall, space scientist Maggie Adairn-Pocock, and the neuroscientist of love Mona Shu. So subscribe to the Suffrage Science Podcast on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, or wherever you get your podcasts, so you don't miss an episode. Almost as soon as the structure of DNA and the genetic code were discovered, scientists started looking for ways to change them, starting with bombarding plants with radiation in the 60s to cause mutations, before quickly moving on to more sophisticated editing tools – enzymes. Restriction enzymes, naturally occurring proteins in bacteria that cut DNA, were discovered in 1968 by Werner Arber, a Swiss microbiologist and geneticist, who won the Nobel Prize for his work in 1978. The budding field of genetic engineering quickly adopted restriction enzymes to create hybrid DNA and modified organisms, ranging from bacteria that produce synthetic insulin to longer-lasting tomatoes and GM salmon, or even pets. For more on that, take a listen to our previous podcast story, GMO-OMG, The History of Genetic Modification, in episode 23 of our first season. While restriction enzymes were the workhorses on which the molecular biology revolution was built, they have their limits when it comes to changing the genome, because they can only cut DNA into fragments at or near specific short sequences. For example, the enzyme ecor one isolated from E. coli bacteria, cuts DNA wherever it finds the sequence G-A-A-T-T-C, leaving a short overhang that will match up and anneal with any other piece of DNA that's been cut with the same enzyme, or another enzyme that leaves the same overhanging ends. Although there are a wide range of enzymes available with different recognition sites, although based on my experience building bits of DNA in the lab, never quite the one you really want, restriction enzymes are still somewhat restricted in cutting and pasting bits of DNA together, rather than making very targeted changes anywhere of your choosing in the genome. For that, and to fulfil the promise of using genetic engineering to prevent or cure genetic diseases, we need much more sophisticated tools. The big challenge here lies in designing tools that can find the correct sequence and precisely edit it. It's like opening a Word document containing a million pages, hitting Control f and finding and fixing a sneaky typo hidden somewhere in the middle. Luckily, if you can find the sequence you want to fix, and make a precise cut in the DNA, the cell will do the rest of the hard work of genome editing for you. When DNA is cut, the cell will repair it in one of two ways. The first is a process called non-homologous end-joining, which introduces mutations at the site where the DNA was cut. Alternatively, if there's another piece of DNA that matches up to the sequence you've cut and just happens to be floating around, it will incorporate that piece of DNA to fix the strand, known as homologous recombination. And it's here that there's a prime opportunity to fix a faulty gene or introduce any other alterations or changes. That's why precise, programmable genetic scissors that accurately cut DNA at a defined location in the genetic code are the key to successful gene editing. The first person to recognise this was Srinivasan Chandrasegaran, a scientist from John Hopkins University in Baltimore, Maryland. And in 1996, he found a way to create restriction enzymes that could cut DNA at any sequence you wished, not just at a specific recognition site. Chandra Segarin created clever synthetic hybrid enzymes combining the DNA cutting domain from a restriction enzyme with special molecules that bind to DNA, known as zinc fingers. Each finger binds to three letters or bases of DNA, depending on its molecular makeup. This means that it's possible to design hands of zinc fingers that will bind to any specific sequence of DNA, effectively making a completely programmable restriction enzyme that snips exactly where you want it. Although zinc finger nucleases open the door to targeted gene editing, they are complicated to make and time-consuming to adapt to different target sequences. Engineering them can take months, or even years. Attempting to speed things up, Professor Daniel Voitas, a plant biologist and genetic engineer from the University of Minnesota, turned to plant pathogens and a bacteria called Xanthomonas. The bacteria inject molecules called TAL effectors into plant cells, which then make their way into the nucleus and bind to the plant DNA sticking to specific sequences and activating gene expression patterns that allow the bacteria to colonise their host. Understandably, plants are not best pleased by this invasion, and they adapt by selecting for mutations in the TAL effector target sequences. Undeterred, the bugs fight back, switching up their TAL effectors to cope with new mutations in the plant genome. So, Voytas figured, why not harness these adaptable, flexible DNA binding proteins to create a new genome engineering tool? In twenty ten he fused tal binding domains with the same cleavage domain used in zinc finger nucleases to create a new genetic editing technology called TALENS. However, unlike zinc fingers, which bind to three DNA letters, each TAL domain only binds to one making them less complicated and more adaptable than zinc fingers, and speeding up the process of adapting the nucleases to new sequences from months to one to two weeks. For a brief moment in the late noughties, zinc fingers and talens enjoyed their time in the genetic engineering spotlight. But they were still tricky techniques to get working, so only the most dedicated labs gave them a go. Then, in 2011, came the discovery that would change Everything. CRISPR. To understand the origins of CRISPR, we have to go back to 1987, when a Japanese student discovered repeating sections of DNA in bacteria. The student in question, Yoshizumi Ishino, was sequencing a gene called IAP in E. coli bugs. This is a straightforward task nowadays, but in the late 80s it was a complicated and time-consuming process just to read the thousand or so letters of DNA that made up the gene in question. But eventually he did it, publishing the sequence in the Journal of Bacteriology, when this kind of thing was still a big deal. In the paper, Ishino noted that the gene seemed to contain repeating sequences of 29 base pairs, separated by unique sections of DNA but he couldn't figure out what they were doing, and he didn't pursue it further. His paper ends with the immortal words. So far, no sequence homologous to these has been found elsewhere in prokaryotes, and the biological significance of these sequences is not known. The mystery of the repeating sections of DNA lay dormant for a few more years, until they were spotted again in the early 1990s. This time, it was Francisco Mojica, a student at the University of Alicante in Spain, who was studying archaea, single-celled organisms that are very similar to bacteria, and also noticed the repeated sections of DNA. The fact that these repeating sequences appeared in two very different organisms, E. coli and archaea, convinced Mojica that they must have some kind of biological relevance. By 2003, DNA sequencing had sped up considerably, and there were now databases containing the genetic sequences of an array of species. Curiously, these repeated sequences were turning up so often in microbes that they'd even picked up their own name. In 2002, researchers in the Netherlands published a paper describing these distinctive repeats in 40 microbial species and proposed the term Spacer's Interdispersed Direct Repeats, or SPIDER. But it was Mohica who came up with the name that stuck. Clustered Regularly Interspersed Short Palindromic Repeats, or CRISPR for short. But it wasn't enough to know that these repeats existed. Mohika wanted to know why they were there and what they did. For years, Mohika tried to solve the mystery of the repeating sections of DNA, theorising that they may have something to do with cell division, or maybe they helped to shape the structure of DNA, or maybe they formed loops for proteins to attach to, or maybe, I don't know, something else. Much of the rest of the scientific community considered the repeats to be irrelevant junk DNA. But Mohica knew that bacteria and archaea didn't have space to waste on useless genetic material within their sparse, compact genomes. Mohica decided to delve deeper into the sections of DNA that lay between the CRISPR sequences in E. coli. And when he did, he found that all these stretches of intervening DNA matched sequences from viruses that attacked bacteria. It turned out that bacteria that had incorporated sections of DNA from a virus in between some of their CRISPR repeats were immune to that particular virus, while those without became infected. Not only that, but the CRISPR system was adaptive. When a new virus came along, the bacteria incorporated some of the virus' DNA in between its CRISPR repeats that's when it hit him. Maybe the sections of DNA and the CRISPR system formed some kind of bacterial immune system. At first, the scientific community was sceptical about Mohica's discovery. He sent his paper to the journal Nature, which said it wasn't that interesting, and it took many frustrating months for him to get it published anywhere. Still, soon a flurry of other publications confirmed his suspicions, and scientists worldwide became interested in the CRISPR system and how it worked. When a virus infects a bacteria, CRISPR-associated enzymes cut out a section of the viral DNA. The section, called a protospacer, is stored in the CRISPR section of the bacterial genome between the repeated sections of DNA that Ishino and Mojica originally identified. If the virus infects the cell again, the bacteria use these sequences to defend themselves. The stored sections of viral DNA are read or transcribed to generate short sections of RNA. These RNAs then team up with CRISPR-associated DNA-cutting enzymes, known as CAS, to search the cell for viral DNA or RNA that matches the stored sequence. And if this CRISPR-RNA-Cas complex finds a matching sequence from an invading virus, it makes a neat snip straight through the viral RNA or DNA, stopping the invader in its tracks. The implications were huge. If the Cas scissors could be directed to cut up any piece of DNA by altering that RNA-Crispr guide... Then this was potentially the perfect programmable gene editing system that scientists had been searching for for so long. The only problem was actually getting their hands on it. Although by 2010, scientists were beginning to understand how the CRISPR system worked, no one had isolated the molecular components of CRISPR, and we still didn't understand how many of them functioned on a molecular level. In 2011, Professor Jennifer Doudna from the University of California, Berkeley, and Professor Emmanuel Charpentier from the University of Vienna decided to collaborate, investigating one particular CRISPR-associated enzyme called Cas9. They found that Cas9 is what's known as a dual RNA-guided protein. It uses the stored sections of viral DNA transcribed into RNA molecules, called CRRNA, to direct the Cas9 enzyme to its target viral RNA. But it also needs an additional piece of RNA called tracer RNA, which helps to bind the crRNA to the Cas9 protein and activates the complex. Soon, what began as a curiosity driven investigation became a project with broader implications. Once they understood how the dual RNA guides worked, they soon figured out that Cas9 could be programmed with a single piece of RNA, combining the roles of the crRNA and the tracer RNA, directing the Cas9 complex to cut double stranded DNA at a specific sequence. After completing experiments proving they could successfully program Cas9 to cut DNA at specific sites, Doudna and Charpentier filed a patent on the use of CRISPR Cas9 technology in genome editing. They also sent a paper covering their results to the journal Science, which fast-tracked its publication in June 2012. A second publication in January 2013 confirmed that the system also worked in human cells. The beauty of CRISPR gene editing lies in its simplicity. RNA plus Cas9 is a simple system of precision-guided genetic scissors that can be programmed to cut any sequence of DNA. And once that cut has been made, nature takes its course, patching up the break with any DNA nearby that happens to match the broken ends through homologous recombination. And if you also provide a matching DNA repair template, complete with any variations or changes you want to incorporate, then those changes will be pasted back into the gene. And there you have it, genome editing you'd think that that would be the end of our dramatic story about the discovery of CRISPR. But in truth, the drama was only just beginning. Doudna and Charpentier, although being the first to publish their results and widely credited as the discoverers of the CRISPR-Cas9 system, were not the only team working on it. A Lithuanian molecular biologist called Virginius Sixnis also submitted a paper with similar results to Doudna and Charpentier to the journal Cell in April 2012. But his manuscript was rejected without review, then rejected again by Cell Reports before it was eventually published in the Proceedings of the National Academy of Sciences, PNAS, in September 2012, months after Doudna's paper. The delay in publishing meant that Sixnit's work was largely overlooked, and his name is rarely mentioned in the CRISPR conversation. However, he did take a share of the Kavli Prize in nanoscience in 2018, together with Doudna and Charpentier. Meanwhile, in 2012, bioengineer Professor Feng Zhang from the Broad Institute at MIT and geneticist Professor George Church from Harvard independently showed that the CRISPR-Cas9 system could be used to edit DNA in human cells. They also filed several patents on their discoveries, explicitly covering the ability of CRISPR-Cas9 to edit eukaryotic cells in December 2012. Their institutions paid to expedite the review of their patent, so they were approved first in April 2014, even though their applications were filed after Doudna's. The University of California and University of Vienna team representing Doudna and Charpentier petitioned for patent interference. Unfortunately, Doudna's patent only presented evidence for the use of CRISPR in prokaryotic bacterial cells, while Zhang's presented specific evidence for its use in eukaryotes, including humans. Dowdner's attorneys argued that CRISPR could obviously be used in eukaryotes too, with no special source required for the move, and the team from the Broad Institute simply followed the instructions published in their paper. But Zhang's team argued that the work published by Doudna and her team was not enough to enable CRISPR to be used in eukaryotes, and additional inventiveness was required. Of course, this urgent need for each team to put their stamp on CRISPR was a reflection of the potentially vast sums of money at stake for whoever got to claim ownership of the technology and therefore license it out to anyone who wants to use it. Then things took an even more unpleasant turn. In 2016, the president and founding director of the Broad Institute, Eric Lander, published an article in the journal Cell called The Heroes of CRISPR. It focused almost entirely on the men in the story, particularly Zhang, the hero responsible for exploring the use of CRISPR in human cells, while downplaying the roles of Doudna and Charpentier. After its publication, many accused Lander of trying to weave a new historical narrative and control the optics around the patent dispute. Men trying to override the scientific contributions of women? Surely not. In February 2017, the patent office ruled against Doudna and Charpentier, saying that eukaryotic CRISPR was a separate technology from other applications. Doudna's team took the issue to the federal court, but their appeal was denied in 2018. And in 2019 they filed another patent interference claim, which is still ongoing. Beyond the patent war, Doudna and Charpentier did get recognition for their work in the form of the 2020 Nobel Prize in Chemistry, becoming only the sixth and seventh women ever to win the prize, and the first women to win without male co-winners. However, as always, some are unhappy, especially as a Nobel can be awarded to up to three people. Many scientists contributed to CRISPR, with obvious third candidates including Mohika, Zhang or even Sixness. But perhaps after all these years of women being passed over for the prize, the committee wanted to show what it felt like to be the other way round for once. You're listening to Genetics Unzipped, the Genetics Society podcast. Find us online at geneticsunzip.com and on Twitter at GeneticsUNzip. And while you're at it, why not tell a friend so more people can discover and enjoy the show. Unsurprisingly, the applications of CRISPR have exploded over the past few years. Scientists are already busy using the tool to engineer crops that are more resilient to extreme weather conditions, livestock that is more resistant to viruses to increase agricultural efficiency, and even pigs that make better organ donors for humans. CRISPR is also being used in new tests for viruses, including a rapid test for COVID-19 that was approved by the FDA in May 2020. But the most revolutionary applications of CRISPR lie in the clinic. So far, most clinical trials using CRISPR involve removing cells, such as blood cells, from a patient and modifying them before returning them back to the patient's body. Many ongoing trials are using this approach to modify immune T-cells so they can fight off various types of cancer, an approach known as CAR T-cells. Another CRISPR-based treatment that's showing promise in clinical trials is for the genetic blood disorder sickle cell anemia, an inherited condition affecting millions of people around the globe, caused by a mutation in a gene called beta-globin. When a person inherits two copies of the faulty beta-globin gene, the oxygen-carrying haemoglobin molecules in their blood cells are defective and form abnormal strands, making their red blood cells squish into a crescent or sickle shape, hence the name. These sickled cells die early, causing anemia, and they stick together, blocking arteries, causing organ damage and extreme pain. Many people with sickle cell anemia need frequent hospital visits and blood transfusions, and most have their lives cut short. Currently, the only cure is a bone marrow or stem cell transplant, which are both risky procedures. So, what if we could just fix the faulty gene in their blood cells with CRISPR? One current clinical trial uses CRISPR to boost the production of fetal haemoglobin. This is a type of haemoglobin we all make at birth, but it's eventually switched off in favour of adult haemoglobin. The idea is that switching on fetal haemoglobin again will compensate for the defective haemoglobin produced in sickle cell anemia. To do this, doctors take stem cells from the patient's bone marrow and use CRISPR to switch off the gene that usually shuts down fetal haemoglobin production after birth, effectively switching it back on. The edited stem cells are returned to the patient, where they set up home in their bone marrow and hopefully start churning out fetal haemoglobin. The first sickle cell patient to receive this pioneering treatment in the US was a young Mississippi woman named Victoria Gray. Doctors hoped that after the treatment, 20% of the haemoglobin in her body would be fetal haemoglobin. One year after treatment, nearly half of the haemoglobin in her blood was fetal haemoglobin, and over 80% of her bone marrow cells contained the genetic modification needed to continue making the protein. What's more, in the year after her treatment, Grey has had no pain attacks or hospitalizations because of her condition. Unfortunately, just as they do for stem cell transplants, patients undergoing the CRISPR treatment still have to have chemotherapy first to kill off their stem cells and make room for the modified cells, with all the gruelling side effects and potential risks that it entails. Next, researchers hope to inject the CRISPR components directly into the patient's body to alter the cells in vivo, removing the need for chemotherapy and making the whole process quicker and easier. This so-called in vivo CRISPR, where the CRISPR technology is used inside a patient's body, brings additional challenges. For a start, you've got to get the CRISPR editing complex into the correct cells avoid inducing any accidental off-target edits where they're not wanted, and avoid triggering an immune response. But in vivo CRISPR is already being used in some easily accessible tissues, such as the eye, which is a handily confined space with little immune activity. The first people to receive in vivo CRISPR treatment were people with sight loss due to a rare genetic condition called labour congenital amaurosis 10 which is caused by a mutation in a gene called CEP290 that disables light-detecting cells in the retina. Currently, there is no treatment for the disease, and it's a leading cause of childhood blindness. Ongoing clinical trials involve injecting CRISPR complexes that delete the mutation in the CEP290 gene, hopefully restoring the function of the light-detecting cells, and therefore also restoring sight. The first patients received the treatment in March 2020, and initial results are expected by the end of 2021. While the sickle cell studies involve editing cells outside the body and returning them, and the eye disease trials are testing editing inside the body, both techniques only make changes to the somatic cells of the body, not the egg or sperm cells, known as the germline. This means that any edits won't be passed on to the next generation. But it's here where the CRISPR story gets a little more unsettling. Although many countries worldwide have bans on germline gene editing, there have already been attempts to alter the genetic code of human embryos, creating genetically modified humans with changes that would also be passed on to any children they might have. In 2017, Hu Jiankui, a Chinese researcher and ex-professor at the Southern University of Science and Technology in Shenzhen, recruited families affected by HIV to a gene editing study. The study involved editing embryos during IVF to disable a gene encoding a protein that allows HIV to enter immune cells, with the aim of giving the resulting babies lifelong immunity to HIV infection. In 2018, Hu made headline news around the world when he announced the birth of twin girls named Lulu and Nana, whose genomes had been altered in this way. The international research community was outraged, calling the experiment irresponsible, premature and unjustified. And Hu was sentenced to three years in prison and a £350,000 fine for violating government bans on gene editing of embryos. Aside from the ethical outrage, there's another big question about WHO's work that has tended to be overlooked. We don't actually know for sure that it even worked. WHO's reports showed that edits were not made uniformly in all cells of early human embryos. Some cells had the intended edits, others had off-target edits, and some had no edits at all. What's more, who only tested a few of the embryonic cells, and the edits to the other cells are unknown. As a result, it's not clear what proportion of the twins' immune cells have actually been edited, and scientists remain sceptical that the girls will have any additional immunity to HIV. Unfortunately, the only way to find out would be to expose them to the virus – And I'm sure you'll agree that they've been subjected to enough dodgy, unethical science already. We will probably never know the effects of the off-target edits made to Lulu and Nana's genomes, or any changes that they will pass on to their children, should they have them. So, does the failure of Who's editing and the international outrage that followed the girl's birth mean we will never have any more gene-edited babies? There's no doubt that CRISPR offers enormous potential for preventing genetic diseases. In theory, it's simple. Just edit the genes in embryos at the early stages, so every cell in the resulting baby's body is free from the genetic disease. But right now, we don't fully understand how our genes interact with each other so editing genes in human embryos could have unintended and unexpected knock-on effects on different parts of the genome or the resulting baby's health. In 2019, ethicists and researchers called for a five-year hold on human germline editing until the technique's safety has been better investigated, moral and ethical issues explored, and acceptable uses agreed upon. Currently in the UK, editing somatic and embryonic cells for research is legal, but implanting edited embryos into the womb, or using edited germ cells for reproduction, remains against the law. So, for now, gene-edited babies are off the table, but many scientists agree that it's no longer a question of if it will happen, but when. For now, CRISPR is undoubtedly the fastest and cheapest way to precisely make changes in an organism's genome. But it's not the end of the story. Although CRISPR gets the job done, scientists worry about the potential impact of off-target edits. As a result, the next generation of gene editing technologies are focusing on increasing precision. One exciting new technique, known as base editing, comes from Professor David Liu a biochemist from Harvard University. Rather than breaking the double-stranded DNA completely and relying on the cell to repair the break, as in CRISPR, his technique uses a clever molecular machine that makes specific tweaks to individual letters in the DNA code. One CRISPR-like component searches for and binds to a particular DNA sequence while another performs a chemical reaction on the DNA letter you want to change at that site, making it look like another letter. Although it's not a complete transformation, the change is close enough to fool the cell's internal biological machinery, which fixes the mismatch in favour of the new version. So, where you once had a C opposite a G, you now have a T opposite an A, for example. And when that gene is read, or the cell copies its DNA to divide, the change will be propagated. Liu and his collaborators are hoping to use this technique to treat progeria, a genetic condition that leads to dramatically accelerated ageing, which is caused by a single DNA letter change. Initial tests in mice have been very promising, and the researchers are now working with pharmaceutical partners to bring base editing to the clinic. The field of gene editing is moving at breakneck speed with ideas that would be considered science fiction less than a decade ago, like correcting a single DNA letter to cure disease or making GM babies fast becoming a reality. But while these powerful tools offer genuine hope for people suffering from incurable genetic conditions, we should also make sure that they are used responsibly so the consequences of their use remain positive for everyone. That's all for now. If you want to know more about Jennifer Doudna and her story, there's a new book out about her called The Code Breaker by Walter Isaacson. Just search your favourite book retailer or follow the link from the page for this podcast at geneticsunzip.com. We'll be back next time taking a look at how researchers are combining genomics, artificial intelligence and large-scale functional experiments to unlock the health secrets hidden within the human genome and make better medicines. For more information about this podcast, including show notes, transcripts, links, references, and everything else, head over to geneticsunzip.com. You can find us on Twitter at GeneticsUnzip. And please do take a moment to rate and review us on Apple Podcasts. It does make a difference, and it does help more people discover the show. Genetics Unzipped is written and presented by me, Katani, with additional research and scripting by Emily Norvang. It's produced by First Create the Media for the Genetics Society, one of the oldest learned societies in the world dedicated to supporting and promoting the research, teaching and application of genetics. You can find out more and apply to join at genetics.org.uk. Our theme music was composed by Dan Pollard. Our logo is designed by James Mail, And audio production is by Hannah Varel. Thanks for listening. And until next time, goodbye.